We are in week four of an eight-week series in the book of Song of Solomon. Uh, we have, up to this point, been talking mostly about their courtship, dating, and attraction, and all that kind of stuff. Today, tonight is their wedding and their wedding night, two of the most important days in any man's life. And uh, we, we get to look at, at that. And so going forward, we will get into their marriage stuff. So if you've been with us and you're married and you've been thinking, oh, this is a great little series for the single people, don't worry, your time is coming. From here on out, they are married, and we are going to hammer the married people for the next several weeks. So there you go. Uh, we, we are getting to you, and, and so don't worry about that. In fact, let me ask you this. How many of you are, are married? Raise your hand if you're married. Oh, did you guys talk? Look at that. All of the married people are in this section. You are all single. Hey, that works out for you guys, right? Now you know. You can pretty much hit on anybody in that section. You'll be good to go. Man, that is, that's interesting. All right. Uh, well, we, uh, this, this week while I was thinking about this sermon, I was trying to remember back to my wedding. I got married a little over five years ago in uh, Northern California, where my wife is from. We got married at a winery, so uh, we were standing there, and the vineyards were kind of to our left, and, and it was beautiful, and that's about all I remember. Um, we, I, I literally was trying to remember moments uh, of the wedding and realized that the only moments, the kind of the snapshots that I can remember, I remember because I've seen pictures of them since, and so it's all a blur. I, I vaguely remember people being there, uh, but it was, uh, it, it was quite, a, quite a deal. And so I always tell young couples when they're about to get married, try to slow it down, try to pay attention, try to remember things. And I, just, I don't think it works, but uh, it, it, it's for most of them the first and only time they'll be on stage. And so they're kind of freaking out about all the people looking at them and stuff. And they just, they don't remember any of it. And so I was thinking today would be a great day for those of you who are married, this section, uh, to, uh, to, to just think back to your wedding with your, with your spouse and uh, maybe go get some coffee or some dessert after service and reminisce a little bit and love each other. And for you, just date it up or whatever you're doing, all right? Uh, but let's get into uh, the message. So Song of Solomon chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 6, we see the wedding procession. A- as you're turning there, um, the wedding, as we'll see um, in, this, in this passage, and kind of has been consistent theme throughout this whole, uh, this whole series, is, is kind of a two-sided deal of covenant, which we've been talking about a lot, and what covenant means and what covenant is, and then um, the result of that covenant, or the celebration of that covenant, which is consummation. And so uh, we, we see marriage and, and the wedding and wedding night in particular as this two-sided covenant and consummation kind of deal. And so we're, we're going to look at that and how those two... Uh, work together and how they depend on each other uh, to be experienced most fully. So chapter 3, verse 6, she says, What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. And this is not kitty or trash, but um, actually the name for kind of a royal couch uh, that Solomon is lounging on, that he's got these dudes kind of carrying him in, carrying to uh, her town, her hometown, to pick her up. So he's on this really cool couch. Um, I I do remember not having one of those at my wedding. That would have been awesome. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel. Just uh, uh, by chance, these, these uh, 60 mighty men are actually double the amount that Solomon's father had. 
Okay, and this is significant only because last chapter, last week, Solomon was looking kind of like a fool, dancing and jumping and bounding and prancing around uh, for the sake of this woman, kind of kind of laying his manhood down for the sake of this girl. And then the next time she sees him, he is not leaping and bounding, but rolling in with 60 strong armed men. Uh, I, I don't want us to forget in this thing that Solomon is the king. He is a powerful man. He is a, a, a respected man. And so as this procession comes out to her town, probably a very small town outside of the city, um, this is an impressive sight. These 60 men come. They are well-armed, says verse 8, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. So in case the wedding kind of takes a bad turn, they're there. <laughs> verse 9, King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon, he made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. And so um, his bride-to-be tells all her friends in her town, go and see, my husband is coming. Look at how impressive he is. She's excited. He's excited. This is just a beautiful day uh, of their wedding. And I thought I would make this, this comment, just not, not, not from the Bible, just from my existence. Um, but I have seen this, this maybe a transition, in, and not that I, I'm super old, but I'm going to make a kind of an, a broad generalization about older generations that uh, they cared more in the context of wedding, cared, cared more about the ceremony uh, than, than the reception. And so my, my sense is um, that they, they used to have long ceremonies and kind of stuffy, stodgy receptions that weren't all that fun. And so now we see this movement amongst young people. And I, I talk to young people and, and have the privilege of marrying lots of people, performing the ceremony for lots of people. Um, <laughs> this isn't like, a, if you're new, this isn't like a polygamous thing, all right? It's one woman. Um, but uh, I, I've seen this kind of change from the uh, couples that go, yeah, 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 let's just do some vows, whatever, it doesn't matter, but we want to get to the party, right? And so, yeah, we'll, we'll, you know, say some things and throw some rings at each other, but, you know, 15 minutes max, right? Keep it, keep it snappy, and then let's get to the open bar and the dancing and the whole deal. And I just, I, I, I think there's something wrong with that. Not, not open bar, I'm pro. Um, <laughs> But the skipping of, of, the, of the wedding and, and kind of glossing over the importance of that. And, and uh, I just think that this is a moment that is a really important moment in the life of a couple. It is the public expression uh, of enduring covenant, everlasting covenant. I mean, you are, you are claiming, you are promising your life to another person and accepting their promise to you. Uh, it's a big deal, so let's not, let's not skip that over. But uh, we are going to, and skip right to chapter 4, verse 1, uh, and, and get to the wedding night. And so one of the themes that has been really prominent through the whole book up to this point um, is, is the theme of purity, right? They have said over and over and over to one another, um, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't stir up or awaken passion too soon. Don't awaken love too soon. That they've, they've talked about this, uh, this need to uh, follow God's timing, to embrace God's vision for sexuality. And so we see here at the wedding night, really the, the first intimate moments between Solomon and his bride. 
And so starting in chapter four, verse one, uh, I picture, very, very righteously picture, uh, Solomon on his bed after the wedding, right? Solomon's on his bed, and his bride kind of comes out of the bathroom wearing something good, and, uh, and, and, and so this is where this, this story begins, okay? And so I want you to picture that in a weird, not weird way, uh, but, but kind of picture what's going on here. And so she unveils herself before her husband for the very first time, and he says to her, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Solomon is a very wise man and very, very loving. Right? He, he, here he is on his wedding night with his bride, his new bride. It's the first time that she has been fully revealed to him physically. We already know about her that she doesn't look like all the other women in the king's court, that she grew up poor. She grew up working outside. She has strong arms. She has calluses on her hands. She's darkened by the sun. And so she here is revealing herself to her husband, to the king, knowing full well, at, 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 at best um, nervous, at worst insecure about how he is going to react to her. And the moment she unveils herself, Solomon quickly says, oh my goodness, you are so beautiful. You look so beautiful, my love. You are beautiful. Just affirms her. He continues to court her as he did before the wedding. Right? I mean, this, the courtship, the, the drawing her out, the caring for her, the loving her that he had done so well in their dating life now carries over into this, these first moments as a married couple where he, even in the midst of, for lack of a better term, foreplay, right, is courting her heart and loving her and making her feel really confident about herself. As, as they are intimate together for the first time. And so he says, you are beautiful, and then he gets a little more specific. He says, your eyes are doves behind your veil. And so on the one hand, just doves are beautiful birds, and so he's saying your eyes are beautiful. Doves are often used literarily to uh, be a metaphor for monogamy, right? Doves are monogamous, and so he's saying not only are your eyes beautiful, but they're only for me, which I like. Okay? He says, your hair is like a flock of goats, leaping down the slopes of Gilead. So I, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt here. And, and so I picture um, these black goats with really shiny coats, right, um, running down the hills of Gilead outside of Jerusalem, running down the hills like goats do, right? That, that happens. Um, they kind of go left and they go right and they're going down the hill and it looks like kind of this wavy black yeah? No? Okay, well, I'm, I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt here and, and that he's not just telling her she looks like a goat. Okay, verse 2. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. <laughs> this is so much better way to say, you got all your teeth and I like that, right? Like... <laughs> This, this would have been fairly rare, right, you know, for her to have gleaming white teeth. And so he's like, I love that your, te that your teeth are white. I love that they're there, uh, you know, like just telling her, just being honest. He says, your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. And so her cheeks, she's probably blushing. She's like, oh, Solomon, my teeth, you know, and, and so... <laughs> 
she's starting to blush. She's got some color in her cheeks, right? And, and so he's like, I love it. I love your cheeks. He says, your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Now, there's some difference of opinion for the commentator. Some of them um, just think, you know, he's kind of gone, hey, eyes and hair and teeth and mouth and, and cheeks and Neck, uh, neck, uh, tower. Yeah, it's like a beautiful tower, right? You know, um, some of them think that maybe she had an abnormally long neck. And so instead of going like a giraffe in the Sahara, right, um, that, that he's just going, it's, it's long, it's stately, it's strong like a tower, right? He, he says there's ample room for necklaces, right? And so he's like, that, he's just spinning it, right? He's spinning it positive. I don't think it's a, kind of a Mr. T vision here of the necklaces, but... And then, and then this is where it gets good, verse 5. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, that graze among the lilies. And so um, he starts at her eyes and her hair and her lips and her, you know, the whole thing down to the neck, down to the, down to the, uh, <laughs> down to the breasts. And uh, he, he looks at her breasts for the first time, and the first thought that comes into his head are, fawns, twins of a gazelle. Baby deer is what he looks at. So I'm thinking, what? So I start thinking, well, what's a baby deer? Well, they're bouncy. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're playful. They're perky. And, uh, and you want to pet them, right? And so... It, it kind of ruins the petting zoo a little bit for you. <laughs> or maybe not if you're a sicko. But, um, so, you, you know, ladies, if, if you have ever thought to yourself, why is my husband always touching? Why is he always all over my breast? He's biblical. <laughs> Just trying to follow the Lord. Love Jesus with all of his hands. Verse 6, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Solomon is, is doing such an amazing job of winning his wife's heart here. I mean, th this is a woman who is naked before her husband for the very first time. She is aware that she does not look like all the other women. And yet immediately, Solomon says, oh my gosh, you are so beautiful. You are so beautiful, my love. I love your eyes. I love your hair. I love your cheeks. I love your mouth. I love your teeth. I love your neck. I love your breasts. I love everything about you. And then he says, you're perfect. There, there is no flaw in you whatsoever. Now, is there a woman in the world who would not want to hear that from her husband? Is there a woman in the world that would not want to hear that from the man she loves, especially in the moment of her greatest vulnerability? And he, he just, he knows exactly what to say. He knows how to draw her out to make her feel comfortable, to prepare her to be sexually intimate for the first time. That her, he's drawing out her heart. He's, he's giving her a level of comfort physically, right? That she feels confident. I mean, this is... This is perfect. Now, what's interesting about this is that she's clearly not perfect. 
at least by cultural standards of, of the day, we've, we've discussed this. We, we've established the fact that she is not perfect by cultural standards. Cultural standards of the day was for her to be, um, essentially look like she'd never walked outside of a house before, to be pristine, to be untouched by the sun, to be untouched by hard work, and she's none of that. She's tanned by the sun. She is, is, has strong calloused hands and strong arms, and she does not look the same as all the other girls. And yet Solomon in this moment looks at her and says, I see all of you, and I don't see any flaws. And, and I think this brings up just a really important point. Have you guys seen um, that Dove video, the evolution? Have you seen that? It's, it's this video that Dove soap put together to show um, how kind of um, the magazine models and magazines works and all that kind of stuff. They take this. If you haven't, if you haven't seen it, go, go afterwards. Um, just Google it on your phone or on your computer and Google Dove Evolution. And basically this video, it, it's remarkable. It shows um, a, a rather just normal looking woman um, sitting in front of a camera and they put makeup on her and they do her hair and they do all this stuff and, she, and there's a transformation. And then they take the images, the pictures that are taken and put them into Photoshop and Photoshop her face to look totally different than she did before and, and then throw it up on a billboard to show just the, the, the impossibility of the cultural ideals of beauty that, that we have. And it's just, it's unbelievable. And it, it, I think it gets at some, some of what Solomon is trying to undo in his bride in this moment. That Solomon is looking at his bride and going, listen, I, I don't care what culture says. I don't, I don't care what this guy says or that guy says. For me, for me, my vision of physical perfection is you. So you got dark hair and you got a long neck and you got nice teeth and you got, that's my idea of perfection. As it should be for every husband. That every husband should look at his wife and go, that is perfect. There is no flaw in that. So whether your wife is tall, short, blonde, brunette, it doesn't matter. Whatever she is, is perfect to you. Now, I may disagree. He may disagree. Who cares? Who cares? They're your wife. So for me, my wife is blonde hair, blue eyes. She's about five foot six. She's a hundred and something pounds. And, and uh, she is to me perfection. Perfection. That is my ideal when it comes to beauty. And so uh, I really think that this is one of the big dangers of pornography. And I mean pornography in the most general sense and just our, the rampant sexuality of our culture where you can't even go to the supermarket without seeing just a, an array, a spectrum of women um, half naked. And, and the danger of it is you see a blonde and a brunette and a redhead. You see green eyes, blue eyes, brown eyes. You see tall, short, big, small, small, big. You see this whole spectrum which forms in your mind this composite of a woman that does not exist. There's no such thing as a blonde, brunette, redhead. I mean, like at the same time. A lot of you girls are that on different weeks. But um, at, at the same moment, there's no such thing as blonde, brunette, brunette redhead, blue eyes, green eyes, brown eyes, tall, short, big, small. Uh, th that doesn't. And so what, what pornography does is, is it creates this composite image that becomes the ideal of beauty that no woman could possibly live up to. Like, it is literally impossible to be all of those things. And so Solomon here looks at his bride and goes, I don't care what anybody else says. To me, there is no flaw in you. 
to me, you are perfect. That has to be, as husbands, that has to be the way we look at our brides. He goes on. Verse 8, come with me from Lebanon, my bride, come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. So um, he is drawing her out. He's, he's saying, come with me, come away with me. This is figurative language to simply draw her to, to final consummation. And there, the, he uses a term for her that, that would stand out for us in that he calls her his sister, right? And, and, and this would be cultural equivalent to when we call our, our bride baby or babe or something like that. We don't mean baby any more than he means sister. But this is a, a way to, to describe the closeness of their relationship, and I think in large part the nature of their relationship up until this point. Now, from here on out, he talks about her simply as his bride. Okay? And, and it, it picks up on, on a theme that Paul talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 5. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul writes a letter to Timothy, who is a pastor of the church in Ephesus. And Timothy is a young man, a single man, and he says to Timothy, in, in 1 Timothy 5, 1, he says, treat older men like fathers, treat older women like mothers, and treat younger women like sisters in all purity, right? And so Paul's advice, godly advice to Timothy, is to look at the other young women, specifically the single women in his church, like sisters, right? And, and, and there's, a, there's a, a ton of wisdom in that in the sense of Purity. And so Solomon gets at this a little bit here when he goes, listen, I have treated you like my sister. I have loved you like my sister, so I have protected you. I have cared for you. I've respected you. I've respected your body and respected the purity of our relationship as, as I would a sister. Now, um, I always get questions. Anytime I push on this, I always get questions of like, okay, well, does, does that mean I can't kiss my girlfriend because I wouldn't kiss my sister? And so, you know, what, what's that all about? So one, good that you wouldn't kiss your sister. Uh, two, I, I would say this. The more that you can treat your, the women in your life in general, the more that you treat the women in your life like sisters, the better off you will be. Okay? So I'm not going to draw real strong lines on that and go, well, it means you can do this and you can't. I'm just going, the more you can treat her like your sister, so you protect her and you cultivate her and you love her, you look out for her, you look out for her good, the better off your relationships will be. And so um, this, this goes for the young men here as you look at the younger women here in our church, um, and there are many, uh, that you would look at them as sisters. So specifically, the ones that are in your missional community that you know and you're in relationship with, that you would protect them like sisters. So I look out at uh, the young women, specifically the single women. There's, there's a lot of really wonderful single women at our church, and I look at them as, as sisters, as, as younger sisters. And so I feel protective over them like I do sisters. Now, as we've grown, I, I, I don't know as many of you, and no, don't know you as well, but in the early days, man, there were, there were a lot of young girls in our church that I, I really felt like were sisters, and I've been able to, um, to kind of oversee their wedding, perform their wedding, and there's these amazing moments where um, I am literally getting to marry my sister with a, 
a guy that I'm trusting more and more, right? And so um, <laughs> the, it, it's, it's, a, it's a really significant moment. And so if, if you are here as a young man who are part of Praxis and part of, part of what we're doing here, that you should look at the, the younger girls around you as, as sisters. And I would say this too, if you are here as a young man who is not a part of Praxis and you are here because there are a lot of young, beautiful women at Praxis and you have bad intentions for them, um, it will be our desire to hurt you. Um, <laughs> physically, if the opportunity arises, um, but certainly emotionally, as I mock you from the stage, okay? So that, that's, a, that's a reality of, like, these, this, these are our sisters. We, we will care for them and we'll protect them and we'll guide them and shape and you know, look out for them and all those kinds of things. And so this sets up the, the guy's half of the responsibility for purity. That Solomon's going, I've treated you like a sister. I've loved you like a sister, which means I have not manipulated you. I haven't coerced you um, in, into physical intimacy. I haven't manipulated you into physical intimacy. I haven't pressured you. I haven't tried that. I have treated you with respect like a sister, and that this is a significant responsibility of the men, that, that it takes two to be impure in a relationship. And so for the men, it is our calling from God to act like older brothers, to care for these young women and treat them like you would your sister and not like you would a prostitute, not like you would someone that you don't respect, that you would care for them protect them, cultivate them, encourage them in the Lord. Verse 12, and this is, this is where it gets good. He says, a garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain seal. Now, in the ancient Middle East, there would be um, wealthy, wealthy families, and certainly the king would qualify, but wealthy families would have a, a spring or a fountain on their property, and fresh water, drinking water, was more difficult to come by in the Middle East, um, and so when they had this well that, that was a, their kind of water fountain, they would seal it up tight so that they wouldn't lose any of the water. They would seal it up so no one could get in and steal it, and then they would build walls around it with a single door that, that was locked to protect it, and they would oftentimes build a garden around these fountains, and it was just this lush, amazing, beautiful place, and so Solomon here, in the middle of their sexual encounter, in the middle of their wedding night, right? They, they have not consummated the marriage yet. They, this, is, this is lead up, this is courtship, this is foreplay. They are on the brink of consummating this relationship, and he stops, stops and goes, you know what? I, I just need to take this moment to celebrate the fact that you have been a locked garden. Can, can, I just, can I just celebrate the fact that I am the first man whom you have given a key to your garden? And, and the commentators will tell you that this, this word garden is probably the most erotic and most anatomically specific word used metaphorically in the entire book. So this is a very specific moment in a specific location. This is a specific thing that he is saying as they are on the brink of, their, of consummating this relationship. He stops and goes, can I please just thank you for, for being a locked garden? He celebrates it. He celebrates that the fact that, that her being a locked garden makes this moment better. It makes their future together better. And so he, he actually stops in the middle of having sex with her and says, this is fantastic, and I just want to thank you for this. 
This has been the theme throughout, throughout this whole book so far, this theme of purity and, and, and caring about your own body and protecting your own body and keeping your garden locked, right? And so we, we've seen from his perspective that he treated her like a sister, and now from her perspective, her responsibility in this was to keep her garden locked. I, I heard a, a pastor say this week, and, and this is somewhat frank, but I think gives a vivid illustration um, of what she's saying here, what he's saying about her, that, that she was a locked garden, a private garden, and not a public park, right? That's, that's a very vivid illustration of, of two sides of this, this coin here. And so he looks at her and just says, thank you so much, that you've cared enough about yourself, you've cared enough about me, you've cared enough about God, to, to be this locked garden. So I, 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 wanna, I want this to be an encouragement to, to those of you who are here who have treated um, women like sisters, to those of you who are here who have kept a locked garden. I, I want this to be an encouragement because the constant message of our culture is, that's stupid. Why would you do that? Why would you not have sex with whomever you can, whenever you can? Why wouldn't you use this? Why wouldn't you actually leverage this to your, to your good? Why wouldn't you use this as power? Why would, so the constant message of our culture is that this is stupid. Having a locked garden is stupid. Treating women like sisters is stupid. And so I, I hope, I want this to be an encouragement to many of you who are here today and, and, are, and have, have lived this. But again, like every other week, I, I, I know that there are many here who look at this passage and it's, it's not encouraging because you have already not treated a woman like a sister. You have already given the key to your garden to some other man that you, you have not locked that up. And so every time I talk about these things, I get the question of, okay, well, what now? It's too late for me. I'm already past this. What, what can I do now? What, what is the future hold? Is there any way to go back? Is there any way to lock this up? Is there any way to change this? And as I was thinking through that, it reminded me of John chapter 8. So let's, let's turn very quickly to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, starting in verse 2. John is the fourth book in the New Testament. It says, Early in the morning, he, and he's Jesus, came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, this is not the Pharisees trying to frame this woman. She's literally been caught in the act of adultery. There's no, there's no talking your way out of that, right? You walk into the room, that's adultery, okay? And so she has been caught in that moment, and so they bring her to Jesus. They said to him, this, uh, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses... Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. This is, this is somewhat of a sick moment here in which the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they don't, they don't care for this woman. They're, they're not trying to uphold justice. They are actually just using this woman um, to trap Jesus. So on the one hand, if Jesus says, yeah, stone her, 
If Moses said stoner, stoner, then literally Jesus just gets lumped in with the arrest of the Pharisees and all of his followers that think Jesus might be different are disappointed. They go, he's just like the Pharisees, he's just a little nicer. On the other hand, if he goes, no, you guys are so lame, just, it's not a big deal, just, yeah, just try not to do that again and, and just lets her off the hook, then he becomes a liberal who doesn't have any credibility with the scriptures because he just overlooks them and gives away cheap grace. And so they are trying to trick Jesus so that one way or the other, he loses followers, okay? Verse seven. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus is so much smarter than the Pharisees. He goes, yeah, you're right. She, she did commit a sin. There's, there's no question about that. She, she sinned against God. She sinned against her husband. She sinned against um, the man's wife. She, she committed adultery, and that's, that's a serious sin. So I'll give you that. So here's what we'll do. I'll let you guys carry out the consequences for her, um, but just go ahead, and the one of you who hasn't sinned, you, why don't you go ahead and carry out those consequences? And then it just kind of goes to writing in the dirt. It's the only time in the scriptures we, we see Jesus writing, and we have no idea what he's saying. He's making a sandcastle or something. And so he just goes down after saying that, and is kind of doodling, looks up. says, when they had heard it, they went down, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So Jesus looks up from his doodles, sees that all the, all the Pharisees are gone. She's still there. He goes, where'd they go? She goes, they're gone. And no one threw a stone at me. And he says to her, neither do I condemn you. Now, what, what we know clearly from the scriptures is that God does not bring condemnation for those who are in Christ. The scriptures tell us that. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That God extends grace. Is there conviction? Is there an awareness of sin? Absolutely. The Holy Spirit makes our minds aware, makes our spirit aware to sin in our life so that we might repent and be forgiven. So in this moment, Jesus says to her, I don't condemn you. I'm not going to hold you responsible for these actions. So uh, on the one hand, extends grace to her. But it's not cheap grace. It, it's not the kind of grace that our culture calls grace, which is just, hey, do whatever you want. Who am I to say what's right and what's wrong? I'm sure you had your reasons. Who, uh, who am I to judge? Who are you to judge? Just kind of go along your way. I'm not going to say anything about your life. That's cheap grace, and it's not even real grace. It's just giving someone license to do whatever they want to do. Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. Now go and stop sinning. That Jesus extends to her grace, but not grace to just get her off the hook, but grace that would change her. Forgiveness and grace, mercy that would transform her heart so that she might live out a biblical vision for sexuality that she hadn't been living before. So that she might walk away from there and go, oh my gosh, I just experienced a level of grace and mercy that blows my mind, that changes my heart so that I would live differently. 
And so those words that Jesus gives to that woman at that moment 2,000 years ago are the same words for today. That, that condemnation is not coming from the scriptures, that condemnation is not coming from the spirit, that condemnation does not come from Jesus. Conviction does. An awareness of sin does. But there is an extension of grace. Not grace to to let you get away with things. Not grace to just kind of cover over and sweep under the rug. Real sin. But the kind of grace that changes. The kind of grace that acknowledges sin. That in fact, the kind of grace that takes on the consequences itself. That as Christ lets her off the hook, extends grace to her, knowing full well that just a couple of chapters later that he would hang on the cross for her sin. That there are consequences for sin. And that Jesus paid those consequences. That Jesus took on that condemnation so that we might receive grace. Grace to live different. Grace to be different. Grace to live out God's vision of sexuality in the world. And so for us today, if you're wondering to yourself, is it too late? Can I change? Is it over? It's not. Go and sin no more. Men, if you have not been treating women like sisters, start now. Repent of sin. Be aware and convicted of your sin. Come before God asking for grace. Grace to forgive, but also grace to empower for the future so that you might walk out of this room resolved to treat women like sisters by the grace of God. That you young women who have not been a closed garden, maybe you have by no means been a public park, but you have not been a closed garden that you might look forward and see that grace affords you the opportunity to close that garden, to lock it up tight, to have one key that you can give to your husband on your wedding night. That there is grace that brings forgiveness and there is grace that brings new life. And that's, that's the message I want us to see. That, that for the men it is to treat a woman like a sister and that for the sister it's to have a closed garden. Verse 13. It says, Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all chief spices a garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. So this is, this is the consummation of their relationship. They've now moved from a locked garden and a sealed fountain to a garden fountain, a well of living water, flowing streams. It says, awake, O north wind, using that same Hebrew word that was used before to say, don't awaken passion too soon. It's now time. And so he says, awake, O north wind, come, O south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden, she says, and eat its choicest fruits. After their consummation, he now says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. He says, I came to my bride, and she was a locked garden. She's not locked anymore, and it was a beautiful thing. He celebrates this moment, celebrates his time with her, says it was like a honeycomb and the honey, the myrrh and the spice. Because I drank wine, and just for good measure, I drank some milk too. This was, a, this was a good day. All right? This last, this last little line is an interesting one. 
In the ESV, it attributes it to um, the friends of the couple, and it says, eat friends, drink, and be drunk with wine. Um, but even in the ESV study Bible, in the liner notes, it talks about how the, there are a variety of interpretations of who is actually speaking here. And, and one of the most winsome um, ideas on this is that this is actually the one and only appearance of God in the Song of Solomon. That instead of it being the friends who I'm going to assume for the sake of weirdness weren't in the room, um, uh, speaking into this moment and celebrating it and encouraging them, that it's actually God giving a blessing to the consummation of their marriage, celebrating this gift of sex that he has given them that they are now experiencing um, in, in, its, in its kind of perfect form. And, and, and I'll be honest, I, I think there is some evidence for it, but, but if, if I was really honest, I, I just want it to be God. I think, it, I think it's way better if it's God. I, I think it preaches better if it's God. Mostly because our culture thinks about Christianity as being very prudish when it comes to sex, very puritanical when it comes to sex, and, and probably for good reason, because over the, at least over my lifetime, and, and I think before, the, our primary message into the culture about sexuality has been, no, 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 don't, 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 don't do that, don't do that, that's gross, that's bad, that's perverted, that's, that's backwards, that's broken, and our primary message has been, no, suppress, it's bad. Which there is certainly some truth to that in the fact that they go, that's broken, that's not right, that's sin, that's not how God intended it to be, and there's truth in that. The problem is two things. One, it's incomplete. It doesn't say, that's broken, here's the fix. That's not it, it's this, right? It, it, it's, it's an incomplete message to just call things bad without giving an alternative vision for what is good. Second thing is it just gives an overall negative vibe, which is just not at all what we see in the Song of Solomon. This, this, is a, this is eight chapters of celebration of sexuality and romance and marriage. This is an over-the-top erotic love poem that, that makes people blush and makes otherwise really smart guys say really stupid things um, about some of the stuff in here. This is unbelievably positive about sex. And so for, for some, it may come as a surprise that God would look down on them, that, that God would inspire this book that is so celebratory when it comes to sex. So the problem has been that the sex that is celebrated in our culture is a hollow, shallow, carnal, broken, retarded vision of sex. See, Playboy does this amazing thing. Playboy does this thing where they simultaneously worship and degrade sex. Same moment. In the same moment, they say, this is the most ultimate thing. Pursue this. Get this. You're awesome the more of this that you have. Sex is awesome but at the same time are celebrating a version of sex that is a shell of the real thing that God created. See, sex is a three-part deal. It is physical, clearly. It is emotional, obviously. And it is spiritual, as God intervenes in that moment to make two people into one flesh. It is a spiritual moment. It is an emotional connection. And it is a physical thing. And yet, pornography, playboy, makes sex and only physical thing. 
It is a physical experience only. And so what they take as a fully orbed, whole, whole entity, this beautiful, perfect gift that God has given to people, stripped away much of the meaning of it, dumbed it down to this carnal momentary experience, and said, this is the most ultimate thing. Pursue it, love it, get as much of it as you can. So in the same moment, they worship it and degrade it. And so the, the biblical vision for sexuality is not less sex, it's more sex and better sex, a more holistic, godly version of it that results in greater experience. So you, you want to pursue this? Have at it. It's a fraction of the joy that you would receive from the fullest version. So uh, this, this reminds me of the, the, probably the greatest C.S. Lewis quote of all time, which is saying something. It comes from my favorite book, The Weight of Glory, and I've used this a bunch, but it's too good to pass up. He says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. And we'll stop there for just a second. Because it seems like the, the overall tenor of the message of Christianity about sexuality is suppress your desire. Have less desire. Push down lust. And what C.S. Lewis is saying is, he goes, I don't think that's our problem. I don't think too much desire is our problem. I think our desire is too weak, actually where we would be willing to settle for this, this broken, fractured, hollow, hollow, shallow version of sex, we don't desire for enough because we're willing to settle for this. He says, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with food and drink, sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. It's a brilliant, a brilliant observation about humanity. That when presented with the opportunity to have something amazing, to have the fullness of something, or a fraction of it, we choose the fraction. We choose the lesser version. Over and over and over and over and over. Many of us spend our lives pursuing this lesser version when the fullest is made, made available to us. Is it more difficult? Sure. Does it take more time and more energy? Yeah. Does it take more sacrifice and investment? Mm-hmm. As anything worth investment has a great return. Anything that is a great return is worthy of that investment. So we, we consistently choose the lesser over the greater. We consistently choose the Kia over the BMW. We choose the RC Cola over the Coca-Cola. We choose to read Harry Potter when we could read Lord of the Rings. We choose Michael W. Smith when we could listen to Coldplay. We choose Bud Light over a kilt lifter or something that's decent. Uh, we choose video games over having a life. Uh, we, we, we make these decisions day in and day out and day in and day out where we choose the lesser over the greater. And so this, this is the biblical vision of sexuality. Don't have less desire, have more. Don't lower your standards, raise them. 
Don't, don't have this crappy version of it. Have the fullest version of it. The, the biblical vision of sexuality is an overwhelmingly positive one. Where, where even God would look down on the consummation of this marriage and go, yeah, get after it. Have fun. Go for it. Enjoy. Eat. Drink. This is a beautiful thing. That the overwhelming message is a positive one of this is a gift given to us by God, so don't sell yourself short. Don't sell the experience short. Don't sell your body short. Don't sell your life short. So the call is twofold, gentlemen. Treat the women like sisters. Treat them like sisters until that, that day comes when consummation is the celebration of covenant. Guys who are married, we see in Solomon this continued courtship that, that their foreplay before consummating their relationship was him encouraging and loving his wife drawing her out, making her feel comfortable emotionally and physically. And for the ladies, it is taking back your body, valuing the gift that God has given you, what is maybe your greatest asset, the thing that you have, yourself, that God says, wall it in, protect. This is so valuable. Anything that you have that is of value, you protect, you build a wall around it to keep people out. There is one key. Keep it, save it for your husband and give it to him and no one else. Give it to him on that night and never take it back. This is a beautiful vision of sexuality that God gives us. Let's pray. Jesus, we are thankful that you've given us such a clear vision of sexuality, that you have not left us to wander about, not left us to just try and figure out on our own what we should do and what is good, and but you've given us very explicit direction that you have led us and, and guided us. That you've given the young men very specific direction. Lord, I pray for the young men here that they would take responsibility for their relationships that they would take responsibility for the young women in their lives, treat them as sisters, protect them, guard them, encourage them, lift them up. I pray for the young women who are told lie after lie after lie in this culture about what they're supposed to look like and what they're supposed to do, expectations that men have for them. Lord, I pray that you would protect their minds, protect their hearts from those lies that they would be encouraged by this story, that they would keep their garden locked, that they would have a greater vision of what their sex life could be. Lord, 
Lord, protect us. Lead us and guide us. In your name we pray. Amen.